Hi, welcome to Beef Cattle Institute's Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us and happy to have a good crew here in the studio this morning. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, guys. Bob. Hello, guys. Dustin. Good morning. And we've got Dr. Bob Weber with us today. Good morning, Good morning. Bob. Good morning, gentlemen. I had trouble. It's been so long you've been on. It's, I had trouble saying your name. Bob Weber. I'll yeah. practice. Yeah. <laughs> Weber. Yeah. So we're happy to have Bob on because he can contribute some to our genetics topics. And we've got a couple discussions we want to have today. One about beef dairy cross bulls and two about genetics related to both weaning weight and carcass characteristics. We've also got a listener question on managing short hay supplies and what we need to be thinking about now. Wanted to remind you, if you haven't had a chance to listen, Bovine Science with BCI, a little more in-depth discussion of some different topics. So we've got health topics, nutrition topics, toxicology, as well as some pharmacology. So lots of good topics there. If you want to listen to that, it's available released weekly. But before we get into our topics for the day, I wanted to ask you guys a question. All of us remember we're coming right up on Halloween, and you remember the old plastic mask with the small slit that you could breathe through. By the end of the night, it was sweaty on the inside. But I wanted to ask you guys if you can list what were the what was a very popular Halloween costume in either the 70s or the 80s. I've got a list of the top popular ones. So let's see if you can hit one on the list. Dustin, you're up first. Well, since I was born right at the end of the 70s, I'm going to skip the 70s for now. We're going to jump into the 80s. Uh, I think the Hulk, maybe? Was that a popular one? Mm. Yes. Hulk's on my list. Boom. Bob? Oh, this is tough. Let's, I, my memory of like the 70s would have been, I don't know, maybe, maybe the Peanuts characters may have even been up there. Did it make it? Not on my list. Okay. No, it's negative one for Bob. <laughs> negative Philip? one, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with additional superheroes. I'm thinking either Superman or Spider-Man. They're in the 80s. Superman did not make it in the 80s. He was there in the 70s. Mm. Maybe you're older than you think. <laughs> all right. Weber? So I was alive in, in the 70s and trick-or-treating in the 70s. I'm going to say Casper the Ghost. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one, but he's not on my list. Not on the list. I would have accepted the Bionic Woman, Batgirl, uh, the Tin Man. I don't know. The, oh, I think it was the Wizard 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then for the 80s, you could have gone with Mr. T, the Smurfs, or anyone from Star Wars. Okay. Right? Right. Those, would have, those would all have been popular. Those would work, yes. Yeah. So hopefully everybody has a good trick-or-treating season. It is amazing how much... Halloween costumes have progressed. Now they're very different than those where you just had the plastic mask. So have fun out with the kids trick-or-treating. I wanted to I wanted to ask, and we're going to start this discussion, we wanted to talk a little bit about beef dairy cross bulls because I think there's an interesting story. We've talked on the podcast before about how the beef dairy cross has really increased due to sex semen. We haven't talked a lot about the genetics. Before we get into that, Dustin, I know you've done some look at how many how many of those beef dairy cross calves do we think are are out there? That's a good question. I'm going to pose that to you guys. What's that's my question for you? Oh, let's say I, I, that's a, that's a very good question. Bob's doing math. I'm, I'm trying to yeah. I'm watching the I'm watching the process. His shoes off. I'm going <laughs> to say there's I'm going to say there's about a million head out there. Cool. Mm. I'm trying to think how many dairy cows there are out there, and then back calculate. And but I can't think of that number right now, so I don't know. There's about ten million, million dairy cows. Yeah, yeah, about ten, 10 million, million right. dairy cows. Okay, so gosh, I, I bet probably half. Let's say half of them are bred to beef okay. bulls. Weber. Yeah, I'm gonna say five, five, five and a half million in 2023. 
These guys are the experts. I'll let you be the judge. Well, there's numbers out there. Uh, there's a range. So you guys are on the upper end, but two and a half to five million. So you guys have been in that upper end. Mm. So quite quite a few, and that has changed dramatically. And I and I know Philip, you've done some work in this area and, and have looked at some of those growing facilities. Growing those dairy calves from a nutritional standpoint is a little bit different than what we do with our on our beef calves. It's pretty easy. We let the mom provide all the nutrition. What are some of the nutritional differences in some of those calves? Well, there's there's quite a big difference between the way we manage those dairy calves nutritionally versus our beef calves. So, you know, beef calf, they're going to be nursing mom, and somewhere around one to two months of age, they'll start to graze a little bit. And then at about three months of age or so, you know, milk peaks and then starts to decline. And so then their forage intake starts to ramp up. And so their GI tract is developed on milk and forage basis but um in the beef or sorry in the dairy system it's a little bit different because that because uh milk replacer is expensive and so we're trying to get those calves off of milk replacer as soon as possible so usually around two months of age we're weaning those calves and then we're trying to get that rumen to develop as quickly as possible so that we can transition them to to feed and so we use a lot of more grains and highly digestible byproducts in to feed those calves to start with instead of forage and so it the nutritional is, um, aspect and the management is quite a bit different so all that all that means we need to have the calf that's suited for that environment that as they go through that process and have good growth traits and weber i know you've done some work with some of these operations and as we think about What's different? I've heard people say we need different genetics for those beef dairy cross calves than we would put in a beef herd. So beef beef bulls in both scenarios, but different genetics. What do they mean when they say that? Yeah, I think the 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 idea here is that the the complementarity is different, right? So as you think about the traits that beef cows bring to the carcass picture, so if we're thinking of a, a terminal type um, selection scenario, there's there's different attributes that those cows bring to the table or different holes you have to fill with the, the mating strategy. And so as you think about you know dairy cows, well, does any carcass characteristic come to mind? They're not really heavily muscled. They're not really heavily muscled. Usually plenty of frame. Plenty of frame. Uh, Well, but in the Jersey cows, actually the other way. True. So think about, you know, the growth of of Jersey, particularly in the, um, you know, component price milk markets, um, uh, very prevalent, popular cows because of small size, maintenance costs lower. So you have to think about, well, what what things do those cows bring? Um, Interestingly enough, they do bring something to the carcass equation, and that's typically marbling. Yeah. But there's all kinds of things we need to fix from a carcass standpoint and fix to a much bigger degree than we might think of from you know a native beef kind of mating. And so because of that, it's a really extreme sort of terminal carcass sire sort of selection criteria to optimize that mating scenario. And because of that, those bulls end up looking substantially different, at least on paper, uh, from a genetics perspective than even terminal bulls we might use on, on native beef cows. So basically they just, they tend to be really hyper focused. Those bulls tend to have traits that are really hyper focused on putting on lean muscle yep. and, and yep. lean may, maybe more than marbling just because you, you're getting some marbling from the dairy side. Exactly. So, so. The, 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 the thing, if you think about the marketing context that you're trying to fix is 
you know, Jersey and Holstein purebred calves, dairy calves going into the carcass chain get discounted be- based on dairy type, right? So dairy type, when you're looking at a beef carcass, is defined typically by thin muscling, very narrow, flat rib eyes, and pretty low yield in terms of, of muscularity. So the way you fix that is is you, you select for bulls that put in rounder type ribeye shape so you get this um, uh, higher yielding carcass in in many ways you want to shorten particularly on the holstein side shorten up the carcass right so you still want them big but you want them not as tall and lanky Um, so you're trying to conframe or constrain frame size a little bit Um, so you kind of think through what's the marketing challenge and then go back to the genetics and go okay we're going to fix it by you know ribeye area ribeye shape carcass length or frame size uh, and those sort of things Plus feed efficiency, average daily gain, growth rate, those sort so of things that you go into the feeding side. There are some different emphases yep. compared to what you on a yep. you know a beef cow that looks like a beef cow. Yeah, and of course no milk EPD or stability or any of the maternal trade. Those don't matter, right? Because all these calves are going to slaughter. Well, I think that's the other thing that I picked up on that you said is it's a terminal cross, and and we don't often do that in beef herds because we're saving heifers or we're saving something that we want to be breeding animals in the herd but you have a lot of ability to make different decisions when you know it's a terminal cross absolutely and and you can you can go all the gas you want in those categories um without any of the negatives that go with retaining heifers because because that's a lot of the negatives come i don't want to keep that cow in my herd eventually but there's some there's a lesson there as we think about the beef industry in general because how much progress has the beef dairy cross calf made genetically carcass trait wise if you were saying let's say five years ago to today ranked zero to a hundred what a hundred being Completely different, zero being no progress. We're in the 90s somewhere, probably. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Dramatically different product from you know Holstein or Jersey calf a decade ago into the carcass stream versus a beef on dairy. And constructed right, almost none of those calves uh, in the beef on dairy space uh, incur the dairy discount. And so the change in value proposition for a dairy producer into this space is... At, at, even at the calf ranch level, so you know, leaving the hutch phase into calf ranch, it's pretty easily a couple hundred bucks a head value difference between the beef on dairy calf versus a straight dairy. That's a lot of money. And yeah. you multiply that out by even two and a half million at the low number. Um, that's a huge difference in value. And it results in a difference in thinking. As you go talk to, to dairy producers that are engaged in this now, it's not about how do we low cost, low input, our dairy calf raising strategy. So, you know, to Philip's point, the, the the nutrition and management at the hutch level and the calf ranch level is now much more focused on building a quality beef product versus doing it as cheap as we can. Yeah, it, it dramatically has changed that industry, which has had impacts on the beef industry. So, look forward to more updates on that. I do want to address one of our listener questions that came in. Was, and if you have a listener question, you can send us one at bci at ksu.edu. This one says, I am preparing to feed my cattle for the winter. I did not have as much fall grazing available as I thought I would, and I'm worried about my hay supply. Do you have any tips on managing or stretching my hay through the winter? So I wanted to turn to you guys and, and see what you thought. Well, I think, you know, one of the first things, we think in fall grazing, I, I'm Sumi's thinking pasture. So, you know, think crop residues. Find, you know, looking for particularly uh, corn stalks or 
uh, sorghum uh, stocks to graze. Those are very good uh, feed sources for cows, especially um, mid-gestation cows that have had the calf weaned off. Um, and cows, those cows can get by with those and a little bit of protein supplement very, very well. Um, so those are, that's one way to, to try to stretch that and not start feeding hay as early. And then another way, way be, you know, depends on rain, um, but if we could seed some cool season annuals somewhere this later this fall or probably about right now, really, that we would have then some early grazing um, next spring so we can shorten up the feeding period um, next spring. So that way we can stretch hay by reducing the hay feeding period on each end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, another idea is is basically some sort of a limit feeding, just not allowing because I'm one of the things I'm worried about is kind of wastage. Uh, cows will waste a fair amount of hay, and, and it's they'll preferentially you know eat leaves and and the best parts of the plant, and then waste uh, some of the less digestible parts of the plant, or just stomp them in the mud. And I want them to eat it all, even though it's not. It's kind of like well, you got to eat your broccoli, you got to eat it all. Um, and so some of the ways people do that are uh, with with bale feeding is, you know, limit the number of bales that you offer and so that they actually eat them all up before you bring the next group, which means a little more labor, a little more attention to when those bales are disappearing. The other thing, there was some work done at Purdue a few years ago where they, you know, actually would put the, the, the bale feeding in a, in a lot or grass trap and only allowed cows in there for, you know, six to 12 hours a day, and it would exclude them from the hay for part of that time. And what they found was they they wasted a lot less uh, because they came in there and when they were in with the bales, they were eating. They weren't messing around. Jacking around. Yeah, and so those are just some things to think about. So basically some form of limit feeding, limit access to the hay to try to really force those cows to eat even the, the less desirable parts. Well, and I think the other thing that comes into play there is how we feed it. Because you talked about bale feeding, but there are differences in bale feeder and Dustin, what are your thoughts? So, yeah, there's some work out of Michigan State that looked at these types of bale feeders, the round bale feeders, and some just just some numbers that they found that from a waste standpoint, waste and cradle feeders looked at about, wasted about 15%, had about 15% waste. Uh, your trailer feeders were about 11, ring feeders were about 6, and those cone feeders were about 35 to 4% uh, from a waste standpoint. Yeah, I've, I've heard that the, the, wastage is a lot less than those I'm, but I, I never really seen the, the data to back that up yeah that's I think that makes a, a big difference to in how we're feeding the hay and you talked about some of the methodologies Bob what are your th- what are your thoughts relative to if I've got to stretch this hay supply what else should I be thinking about as far as the number of animals eating yeah so I think the anytime you're going into short supply um, changing demand um, can be a really effective strategy too so you know I like uh, you know Philip's discussion you know about early weaning making sure you've decreased the nutrient demand on cows maintain body condition score protein supplementation feed an ionophore right so we get about 10 percent better feed utilization out of roughages um, when we do that um, so stretch everything but the other bits take a hard look at, at what what you got standing around that's not productive and you know right now cult cow values are really high if you're going into uh, a a feeding period where hay is elevated in price, some additional cash flow is probably helpful, but decreasing demand to get down to the essential group of cows you want to preserve through, it's a little like drought management strategy, right? So figuring out which ones you want to carry through and invest in and which ones can go. So, you know, late bred cows, um, 
uh, are going to be pretty valuable in the marketplace. Um, open dry cows from a slaughter cow standpoint worth a lot. Maybe even go back and look at, um, you know, if I've got a choice between a mature bred cow and a replacement heifer, bred replacement heifer, one of those generates more value next spring when she calves than the other one. And that's the the aged bred cow is going to raise a heavier calf on average than um, those replacement heifers. So, and a bred replacement heifer is worth a lot of money in the marketplace. So think through the strategy of how you might reduce demand and still maintain productivity in your cow herd. Because if I'm going to do that, I want to do it now before I feed them hay for two or three months and then do that math. At least do the math now. And it may be a time as I'll say the way that you put it is I can do some voluntary culling. A lot of times I'm calling just open ones, but now may be a time where I can yeah, I can cows. pick some of the ones that maybe are just a little less productive. Yeah. So have speak, a plan's the biggest thing, right? Have Now's a pl- the time to start really thinking through this because it's, it's going to get tight. And we talked we talked about productivity, and I w- wanted to ask you, Bob. I'll come back to you on this one because when we think about genetic improvements, and we talked about all the genetic improvements on the beef dairy side, and we've had drastic genetic improvements on the beef side as well. But our weaning weight hasn't changed that much, or has it? How, how much has weaning weight been impacted by our genetic improvements? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's there's some recent work. Um, Dave Wallman at Oklahoma State uh, um, has a, a really keen interest in kind of this weaned calf performance and cow size relationship over time. Has published a lot in that space and worked with uh, colleagues. In fact, Ken Odie here at K State uh, was on one of these recent studies, and they looked at you know sale weights of calves going through video auctions um, over time. So a big data data set, and what they found is starting about 2006, we've kind of plateaued. There's still it's a little bit of an increase, but it's a much flatter increase than we had you know in the 80s 90s um, up until about the year 2000 and you know lots of consternation in the industry about well we got all these selection tools everybody's using them how come we're not seeing changes in performance and one of the hypotheses here is is that we've actually reached the point of uh, environmental constraint that limits phenotypic expression of genetic potential, right? So if we remember our old equation, phenotype is genetics plus environment, the EPD or selection index describes the genetics part exclusive of the environment. Environments, you know, for a trait like weaning weight is roughly about 70% of the differences we observe between animals. So it has, environment has a huge influence on that phenotype. Yeah, really. I mean, you think about grass hasn't changed. You know, so back to the 70s or 80s or however far back you want to go, the the nutrient profile of grass and the amount of grass, it's exactly the same. Pretty much. I mean, that, that, that's so There's the There's some guys that have managed that, but... Yeah, you know, on an individual ranch level, you can have better grass production in the past, but the planet isn't making different grass. Right. And a ranch doesn't have more grass for calves to consume and and that's the bulk of their diet and 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 in some ways you could actually argue there if if we haven't changed stocking rate because of bigger cows we actually may have less grass available to calves right Mm -hmm. because they're they're the as philip pointed out earlier you know we about 100 days or so we're starting to decrease lactation in the beef cow those calves are going to start going out and grazing and depending on what our calf drop is may not be the best forage to start with and they have a tendency to pick out in general a little better nutrient diet than the cows do but they're competing with the cows yeah very much so and so you know brings up a question in my mind is you know we always think about 
creep feeding is is being one of those things that is kind of marginal as far as profitability goes because I'm replacing grass with a more expensive feed. But, you know, if I've got the genetic potential in my calves to really convert that creep feed and in, in um now with the, with newer genetics, newer genetics and more recent years, does that change that equation of whether creep feeding is profitable or not? And maybe even retaining ownership through a backgrounding phase becomes a bigger option, so I can capture some of that genetic potential of my calves. Yeah, you've moved the the sale point, so weaning weight per se doesn't really matter. It's that next sale weight mm-hmm. that, that you can capture. Because what I'm hearing is you you've got the genetic potential in those calves, but to unlock it. We have to give them more resources, which exactly. is why Philip has said either either creep feeding or owning them longer. The the counter argument I would give to creep feeding is if we're prior to weaning and we're doing that, one of the inefficiencies is that calf is trying to digest milk, grass, feed that we're given to him, which makes him a little bit less efficient. But you talked about early weaning, which may be an option, and I like the idea of can we give them more nutrition? I mean, the concept, can we give them more nutrition? That's kind of what you guys are saying. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, an, an early weaning strategy, if, you, if you're going to put calves on feed, save the energy loss from cow feeding to milk to calf digest, all those inefficiencies, that intrinsic loss that happens. So with the and genetics, just go start feeding the calf, right? With the genetics we have today, maybe we should really look at that weaning age new uh, in a new way and say, well, maybe we should move that a lot earlier and move those calves and, and it might be you know improved forages or a combination of improved forages and a, and a supplement but give them the the diet that allows that genetics to express well how did we decide the old age or did we just do i mean who decided what age we should wean calves i think dr weber did <laughs> not it <laughs> but your your early weaning thing does something else that's important too so we, we change calf performance but we change you know there's a, a really good study from here at k-state on warm season grass and as you delay weaning into the fall cows lose body condition score calves weights actually don't change very much in fact they can go backwards um and then you've got the situation where back to our hay discussion earlier we've got to feed condition back onto cows before calving with an expensive feed stuff so maybe just wean the calves maybe the answer to this changing genetics is one of the ways by leaving weaning date kind of where we've left it we haven't benefited a lot from some improved growth genetics but if we have the improved growth genetics in these calves and change the weaning age down a little bit younger we might be able to get some wins and kept them like philip well and yeah right? weaning, i mean you gotta, you gotta retain yeah, it's strategy. not just sell yep. them at weaning yep. but yep. keep mm-hmm. them past that time well, back to something that bob said you know we might think that well we can if we increase the milk production of our cows we could increase the genetic potential or increase the the expression of that genetic potential in our calves but then we run into the problem of pulling down body condition score on our cows and then we end up putting more feed into our cows to get them back into body condition score so that they rebreed and and can cap yeah and so so that that's not necessarily the best strategy so what you guys are saying is the genetics have improved but we're using the same management strategy so we, we might not expect to have a better weaning weight beyond a certain point until we modify our management strategy to match the genetics, which is what's already happened in either feed yards, the calf ranches we were talking about earlier. There's been modifications to keep up with the genetics. Cow-calf has been very similar. I like the ideas you guys are throwing out. We'll explore that more on a future episode to figure out 
what are some of those options and Bob, I appreciate you joining us today. You bet. Lots of fun. Love being here. Yeah, we were able to have some great discussions. So if you have any questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, you can reach out to us on Facebook or you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.